St. Patrick from Wikipedia, the free encyclopedia for other uses. See St. Patrick, disambiguation, St. Patrick, stained glass window of St. Patrick from St. Patrick Catholic Church, Junction City, Ohio, United States, Bishop and Confessor, Apostle of Ireland, born Roman or sub-Roman Britain, died Ireland, venerated in Catholic Church, Eastern Orthodox Church, Anglican Communion, Major Shrine, Arma, Northern Ireland, Glastonbury Abbey, England, Feast, the 17th of March, St. Patrick's Day, Attributes, Crozier, Mitre, Holding a Shamrock, Carrying a Cross, Repelling Serpents, Harp Patronage, Ireland, Nigeria, Montserrat, Archdiocese of New York, Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Newark, Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Los Angeles, Boston, Rolla, Missouri, Leiza, Puerto Rico, Murcia, Spain, Clangiola Fadre, Engineers, Paralegals, Archdiocese of Melbourne, Invoked Against Snakes, Sins, 1. St. Patrick, Latin, Patricius, Irish, Podrick P, or Pad, Welsh, Patrick, was a 5th century Romano-British Christian missionary and bishop in Ireland. Known as the Apostle of Ireland, he is the primary patron saint of Ireland, the other patron saints being Bridget of Kildare and Columba. Patrick was never formally canonized, too, having lived before the current laws of the Catholic Church in these matters. Nevertheless, he is venerated as a saint in the Catholic Church, the Church of Ireland, and in the Eastern Orthodox Church, where he is regarded as equal to the Apostles and Enlightener of Ireland. 3. The dates of Patrick's life cannot be fixed with certainty, but there is general agreement that he was active as a missionary in Ireland during the 5th century. A recent biography, 4. On Patrick shows late 4th century date for the saint is not impossible. 5. According to tradition dating from the early Middle Ages, Patrick was the first Bishop of Armagh and Primate of Ireland and is credited with bringing Christianity to Ireland, converting a pagan society. He has been generally so regarded ever since, despite evidence of some earlier Christian presence. 6. According to Patrick's autobiographical confessio, when he was about 16, he was captured by Irish pirates from his home in Britain and taken as a slave to Ireland. He writes that he lived there for six years as an animal herder before escaping and returning to his family. After becoming a cleric, he returned to spread Christianity in Northern and Western Ireland. In later life, he served as a bishop, but little is known about where he worked. By the 7th century, he had already come to be revered as the patron saint of Ireland. His feast day is observed on the 17th of March, the supposed date of his death. It is celebrated in Ireland and among the Irish diaspora as a religious and cultural holiday. In the dioceses of Ireland, it is both a solemnity and a holy day of obligation. Sources Two Latin works survive which are generally accepted as having been written by St. Patrick. These are the Declaration, Latin, Confessio, 7, and the Letter to the Soldiers of Caroticus, Latin, Epistola, 8, from which come the only generally accepted details of his life. 9. The Declaration is the more biographical of the two. In it, Patrick gives a short account of his life and his mission. Most available details of his life are from subsequent hagiographies and annals, which have considerable value but lack the empiricism scholars depend on today. 10. Name. The only name that Patrick uses for himself in his own writings is Patricius, Patrick which gives Old Irish, Patrick, Pad, and Irish, Podrick Pad, or he, English Patrick, Scottish Gaelic, Padre, Welsh, Patrick, Cornish, Petrick. Hagiography records other names he is said to have borne to rich in 7th century Collectania gives Magnus, that is, famous, Succetus, that is, god of war, Patricius, that is, father of the citizens, Cothotheacus, because he served four houses of Druids. 11. Magnus appears in the 9th century, Historia Britannum as Mon, descending from British Magnus, meaning servant lad. 11. Succetus which also appears in Mukumokum Athenis 7th century life as Soche. 11. Is identified by MacNeil as a word of British origin meaning swineherd. 12. Cothotheacus also appears as Cothrage in the 8th century biographical poem known as Phoenix Hymn and a variety of other spellings elsewhere, and is taken to represent a primitive Irish, Catricius, although this is disputed. Harvey argues that Cothrage has the form of a classic old Irish tribal, and therefore place, name, 
noting that Ail Coethrigi is a name for the Rock of Cashel, and the place names Cothrugu and Catright are attested in counties Antrim and Carlow. 13. Dating. The reputed burial place of St. Patrick in Down Patrick, the dates of Patrick's life are uncertain. There are conflicting traditions regarding the year of his death. His own writings provide no evidence for any dating more precise than the 5th century generally. His biblical quotations are a mixture of the Old Latin version and the Vulgate, completed in the early 5th century, suggesting he was writing at the point of transition from Old Latin to Vulgate. 14. Although it is possible the Vulgate readings may have been added later, replacing earlier readings. 15. The letter to Caroticus implies that the Franks were still pagans at the time of writing. 16. Their conversion to Christianity is dated to the period 496 to 508. 17. The Irish Annals. For the 5th century date Patrick's arrival in Ireland at 432, but they were compiled in the mid-6th century at the earliest. 16. The date 432 was probably chosen to minimize the contribution of Palladius, who was known to have been sent to Ireland in 431, and maximize that of Patrick. 18. A variety of dates are given for his death. In 457 the elder Patrick, Irish, Patraic Sen, is said to have died. This may refer to the death of Palladius, who according to the Book of Armagh was also called Patrick. 18. In 461 stroke 2 the annals say that here's some record the repose of Patrick. 19. 19 in 492 stroke 3 they record the death of Patrick, the Archapostle, or Archbishop and Apostle of the Scoti, on the 17th of March, at the age of 120. 19. 31. While some modern historians, 20, accept the earlier date of C460 for Patrick's death, scholars of early Irish history tend to prefer a later date, C493. Supporting the later date, the annals record that in 553 the relics of Patrick were placed 60 years after his death, in a shrine by Colum Killa, emphasis added. 21. The death of Patrick's disciple Machta is dated in the annals to 535 or 537, 21, 22, and the early hagiographies all bring Patrick into contact with persons whose obits occur at the end of the 5th century or the beginning of the 6th, 23. However, E.A. Thompson argues that none of the dates given for Patrick's death in the annals are reliable. 24. A recent biography argues that a late 5th century date for the saint is not impossible. 25. 34. 35. Life. Late Roman Britain. Patrick was born at the end of Roman rule in Britain. His birthplace is not known with any certainty. Some traditions place it in what is now England, one identifying it as Glanavent to modern Ravenglass in Cumbria. In 1981, Thomas argued at length for the areas of Birdoswald, 20 miles, 32 km, east of Carlisle on Hadrian's Wall Thomas 1981, pages 310 to 14. In 1993, Hoare glossed it as, probably near Carlisle. There is a Roman town known as Banaventa in Northamptonshire, which, is phonically similar to the Banaventa Bernie mentioned in Patrick's Confession, but this is probably too far from the sea. 26. Claims have also been advanced for locations in present-day Scotland, with the Catholic Encyclopedia stating that Patrick was born in Kilpatrick, Scotland, 27, and in 1926 Owen MacNeil also advanced a claim for South Wales, 28. Patrick's father, Calpurnius, is described as a decurion, senator and tax collector, of an unspecified Romano-British city, and as a deacon, his grandfather Potitus was a priest from Bonaven to Bernia, 29. However, Patrick's confession states he was not an active believer in his youth. According to the Confession of St. Patrick, at the age of 16 he was captured by a group of Irish pirates from his family's villa at Banavum to Bernie. 30. They took him to Ireland where he was enslaved and held captive for six years. Patrick writes in the Confession, 30 that the time he spent in captivity was critical to his spiritual development. He explains that the Lord had mercy on his youth and ignorance, and afforded him the opportunity to be forgiven his sins and convert to Christianity. While in captivity, he worked as a shepherd and strengthened his relationship with God through prayer, eventually leading him to convert to Christianity. 30. After six years of captivity he heard a voice telling him that he would soon go home, and then that his ship was ready. Fleeing his master, he travelled to a port 200 miles away, 
31, where he found a ship and with difficulty persuaded the captain to take him. After three days sailing, they landed, presumably in Britain, and apparently all left the ship, walking for 28 days in a wilderness and becoming faint from hunger. Patrick's account of his escape from slavery and return home to Britain is recounted in his Declaration, 32. After Patrick prayed for sustenance, they encountered a herd of wild boar, 33. Since this was shortly after Patrick had urged them to put their faith in God, his prestige in the group was greatly increased. After various adventures, he returned home to his family, now in his early 20s, 34. After returning home to Britain, Patrick continued to study Christianity. Patrick recounts that he had a vision a few years after returning home. I saw a man coming, as it were from Ireland. His name was Victoricus, and he carried many letters, and he gave me one of them. I read the heading, The Voice of the Irish. As I began the letter, I imagined in that moment that I heard the voice of those very people who were near the wood of Foclet, which is beside the Western Sea, and they cried out, as with one voice, we appeal to you, holy servant boy, to come and walk among us. 35. A.B.E. Hood suggests that the Victoricus of St. Patrick's vision may be identified with St. Victricius, Bishop of Rouen in the late 4th century, who had visited Britain in an official capacity in 396. 36. However, Ludwig Bieler disagrees. 37. Patrick studied in Europe principally at Auxerre, but is thought to have visited the Mamoutier Abbey, Tours and to have received the tonsure at Lerins Abbey St. Germanus of Auxerre, a bishop of the Western Church, ordained him to the priesthood. 38. 39. Patrick going to Tara. Illustration from a 1904 book, acting on his vision, Patrick returned to Ireland as a Christian missionary. 30. According to J.B. Berry, his landing place was Wicklow, Company. Wicklow, at the mouth of the river Inverduke, which is now called the Vartry. 40. Berry suggests that Wicklow was also the port through which Patrick made his escape after his six years' captivity, though he offers only circumstantial evidence to support this. 41. Tradition has it that Patrick was not welcomed by the locals and was forced to leave and seek a more welcoming landing place further north. He rested for some days at the islands off the Skerries coast, one of which still retains the name of Inish Patrick. The first sanctuary dedicated by Patrick was at Saul. Shortly thereafter Benny, or Beninius, son of the chieftain Sexton, joined Patrick's group. 39. Much of the declaration concerns charges made against Patrick by his fellow Christians at a trial. What these charges were, he does not say explicitly, but he writes that he returned the gifts which wealthy women gave him, did not accept payment for baptisms, nor for ordaining priests, and indeed paid for many gifts to kings and judges, and paid for the sons of chiefs to accompany him. It is concluded, therefore, that he was accused of some sort of financial impropriety, and perhaps of having obtained his bishopric in Ireland with personal gain in mind. 42. The condemnation might have contributed to his decision to return to Ireland. According to Patrick's most recent biographer, Roy Fleckner, the Confessio was written in part as a defense against his detractors, who did not believe that he was taken to Ireland as a slave despite Patrick's vigorous insistence that he was 43. Patrick eventually returned to Ireland, probably settling in the west of the island, where, in later life, he became a bishop and ordained subordinate clerics. Stained glass window in Carlow Cathedral, showing St. Patrick preaching to Irish kings. From this same evidence, something can be seen of Patrick's mission. He writes that he baptized thousands of people. 44. Even planning to convert his slavers, 32. He ordained priests to lead the new Christian communities. He converted wealthy women, some of whom became nuns in the face of family opposition. He also dealt with the sons of kings, converting them to 45. The Confessio is generally vague about the details of his work in Ireland, though giving some specific instances. This is partly because, as he says at points, he was writing for a local audience of Christians who knew him and his work. There are several mentions of traveling around the island, and of sometimes difficult interactions with the ruling elite. He does claim of the Irish, never before did they know of God except to serve idols and unclean things. But now, they have become the people of the Lord, and are called children of God. 
the sons and daughters of the leaders of the Irish are seen to be monks and virgins of Christ. 46. Patrick's position as a foreigner in Ireland was not an easy one. His refusal to accept gifts from kings placed him outside the normal ties of kinship, fosterage and affinity. Legally, he was without protection, and he says that he was on one occasion beaten, robbed of all he had, and put in chains, perhaps awaiting execution. 47. Patrick says that he was also many years later a captive for 60 days, without giving details. 48. Murphy's Life of St. Patrick contains a supposed prophecy by the Druids which gives an impression of how Patrick and other Christian missionaries were seen by those hostile to them. Across the sea wheel come Ad's head. 49. Crazed in the head, his cloak with hole for the head, his stick bent in the head. He will chant impieties from a table in the front of his house. All his people will answer. So be it, so be it. 50. The second piece of evidence that comes from Patrick's life is the letter to Caroticus or letter to the soldiers of Caroticus, written after a first remonstrance was received with ridicule and insult. In this, Patrick writes, 51, an open letter announcing that he has excommunicated Caroticus because he had taken some of Patrick's converts into slavery while raiding in Ireland. The letter describes the followers of Caroticus as fellow citizens of the Devils, and associates of the Scots, of Dalriada and later Argyll, and Apostate Picts. 52. Based largely on an 8th century gloss, Caroticus is taken to be King Zeretic of Alclut. 53. Thompson however proposed that based on the evidence it is more likely that Caroticus was a British Roman living in Ireland. 54. It has been suggested that it was the sending of this letter which provoked the trial which Patrick mentions in the Confession. 55. 7th century writings, an early document which is silent concerning. Patrick is the letter of Columbanus to Pope Boniface IV of about 613. Columbanus writes that Ireland's Christianity was first handed to us by you, the successors of the Holy Apostles, apparently referring to Palladius only, and ignoring Patrick. 56. Writing on the Easter controversy in 632 or 633. Commune, it is uncertain whether this is Comain Fota, associated with Clonfort, or Comain Find, does refer to Patrick, calling him our Papa, that is, Pope or Primate. 57. Two works by late 7th century, hagiographers of Patrick have survived. These are the writings of Tirachan and the Vita Sancti Patricii of Mukumoku Machtini. 58. Both writers relied upon an earlier work, now lost, the Book of Ulton. 59. This Ulton, probably the same person as Ulton of Ardbracken, was Tirachan's foster father. His obituary is given in the Annals of Ulster under the year 657. 60. These works thus date from a century and a half after Patrick's death. T. Richin writes, I found four names for Patrick written in the Book of Ulton, Bishop of the tribe of Conchobar, Holy Magnus that is, famous, Succetus that is, the God of War, Patricius that is, father of the citizens, Cothesiacus, because he served four houses of Druids. 61. Muku records much the same information, adding that, H, his mother was named Concessa. 62. The name Cothesiacus, however, is simply the Latinized form of Old Irish Cothrage, which is the Q Celtic form of Latin Patricius. 63. The Patrick portrayed by T. Richinand. Muku is a martial figure, who contests with Druids, overthrows pagan idols, and curses kings and kingdoms. 64. On occasion, their accounts contradict Patrick's own writings. T. Richin states that Patrick accepted gifts from female converts although Patrick himself flatly denies this. However, the emphasis T. Richin and Muku placed on female converts, and in particular royal and noble women who became nuns, is thought to be a genuine insight into Patrick's work of conversion. Patrick also worked with the unfree and the poor, encouraging them to vows of monastic chastity. T. Richin's account suggests that many early patrician churches were combined with nunneries founded by Patrick's noble female converts. 65. The martial Patrick found in T. Richin and Muku, and in later accounts, echoes similar figures found during the conversion of the Roman Empire to Christianity. It may be doubted whether such accounts are an accurate representation of Patrick's time, although such violent events may well have occurred as Christians gained in strength in numbers. 66. Much of the detail supplied by T. Richin and Muku, in particular the churches established by Patrick, 
and the monasteries founded by his converts may relate to the situation in the 7th century when the churches which claimed ties to Patrick, and in particular Armagh, were expanding their influence throughout Ireland in competition with the Church of Kildare. In the same period, Wilfred, Archbishop of York, claimed to speak as Metropolitan Archbishop for all the northern part of Britain and of Ireland at a council held in Rome in the time of Pope Agatho, thus claiming jurisdiction over the Irish Church. 67. Other presumed early materials include the Irish Annals, which contain records from the Chronicle of Ireland. These sources have conflated Palladius and Patrick. 68. Another early document is the so-called First Synod of St. Patrick. This is a 7th century document, once, but no longer taken as to contain a 5th century original text. It apparently collects the results of several early synods and represents an era when pagans were still a major force in Ireland. The introduction attributes it to Patrick, Auxilius and Iserninus, a claim which cannot be taken at face value. 69. Legends Patrick uses Shamrock in an illustrative parable. Patrick depicted with Shamrock in detail of stained glass window in St. Benin's church, Kilbenin. County Galway, Ireland. Legend credits Patrick with teaching the Irish about the doctrine of the Holy Trinity by showing people the shamrock, a three-leafed plant, using it to illustrate the Christian teaching of three persons in one God. 70. The earliest written version of the story is given by the botanist Caleb Threlkeld in his 1726 synopsis Sterpium Hibernicarum. But the earliest surviving records associating Patrick with the plant are coins depicting Patrick clutching a shamrock which were minted in the 1680s. 71. 72. In pagan Ireland, three was a significant number, and the Irish had many triple deities, a fact that may have aided Patrick in his evangelization efforts when he held up a shamrock and discoursed on the Christian trinity. 73. 74. Patricia Monaghan says there is no evidence that the shamrock was sacred to the pagan Irish. 73. However, Jack Santino speculates that it may have represented the regenerative powers of nature and was recast in a Christian context. Icons of St. Patrick often depict the saint with a cross in one hand and a sprig of shamrocks in the other. 75. Roger Homan writes, we can perhaps see St. Patrick drawing upon the visual concept of the triskeel when he uses the shamrock to explain the trinity. 76. Patrick banishes snakes from Ireland. Patrick banishing the snakes. Ireland was well known to be a land without snakes, and this was noted as early as the 3rd century by Gaius Julius Solanus, but later legend credited Patrick with banishing snakes from the island. The earliest text to mention an Irish saint. Banishing snakes from Ireland is in fact the life of St. Columba, chapter 3.23, written in the late 7th or early 8th century, 77. The earliest writings about Patrick ridding Ireland of snakes are by Jocelyn of Furness in the late 12th century, 78, who says that Patrick chased them into the sea after they attacked him during his fast on a mountain, 79. Gerald of Wales also mentions the story in the early 13th century, but he is doubtful of its truthfulness. 80. The hagiographic theme of banishing snakes may draw on the biblical account of the staff of the prophet Moses. In Exodus 7, 8 to 7, 13, Moses and Aaron use their staffs in their struggle with Pharaoh's sorcerers, the staffs of each side turning into snakes. Aaron's snake staff prevails by consuming the other snakes. 81. Post-glacial Ireland never had snakes. 79. At no time has there ever been any suggestion of snakes in Ireland. So, there was nothing for St. Patrick to banish, says naturalist Nigel Monaghan, keeper of natural history at the National Museum of Ireland in Dublin, who has searched extensively through Irish fossil collections and records. 79. Patrick's Fast on the Mountain T. Richen wrote in the 7th century that Patrick spent 40 days on the mountain top of Cruachan Eagle, as Moses did on Mount Sinai. The 9th century Bethlehem says that Patrick was harassed by a flock of black demonic birds while on the peak, and he banished them into the hollow of Lugnadamon, hollow of the demons by ringing his bell. Patrick ended his fast when God gave him the right to judge all the Irish at the last judgment, and agreed to spare the land of Ireland from the final desolation. 82. 83. A later legend tells how Patrick was tormented on the mountain by a demonic female serpent named Korab or Korfanach. Patrick is said to have banished the serpent into Loch Nacora below the mountain, or into a hollow from which the lake burst forth, 
1884, the mountain is now known as Croke Patrick, Cruach Fadre, after the Saint Patrick and Dyer. According to tradition, Patrick founded his main church at Armayard Macha. In the year 445 Muku writes that a pagan chieftain named Dyer would not let Patrick build a church on the hill of Ardmacha, but instead gave him lower ground to the east. One day, Dyer's horses die after grazing on the church land. He tells his men to kill Patrick, but is himself struck down with illness. Dyer's men beg Patrick to heal him, and Patrick's holy water revives both Dyer and his horses. Dyer rewards Patrick with a great bronze cauldron and gave him the hill of Ardmacha to build a church, which eventually became the head church of Ireland. Dyer has similarities with the Dagda, an Irish god who owns a cauldron of plenty. 85. In a later legend, the pagan chieftain is named Crom. Patrick asks the chieftain for food, and Crom sends his bull, in the hope that it will drive off or kill Patrick. Instead, it meekly submits to Patrick, allowing itself to be slaughtered and eaten. Crom demands his bull be returned. Patrick has the bull's bones and hide put together and brings it back to life. In some versions, Crom is so impressed that he converts to Christianity, while in others he is killed by the bull. In parts of Ireland, Lonessa, the 1st of August, is called Crom Sunday and the legend could recall bull sacrifices during the festival. 86. Patrick speaks with ancient Irish ancestors. The 12th century work Ikalam Nasenorach tells of Patrick being met by two ancient warriors, C. Ailt Macrona and Andoshin, during his evangelical travels. The two were once members of Fionn MacCumhale's warrior band the Fianna, and somehow survived to Patrick's time. 87. In the work Saint Patrick seeks to convert the warriors to Christianity, while they defend their pagan past. The heroic pagan lifestyle of the warriors, of fighting and feasting and living close to nature, is contrasted with the more peaceful, but unheroic and non-sensual life offered by Christianity. Citation needed. Patrick and the Innkeeper. A much later legend tells of Patrick visiting an inn and chiding the innkeeper for being ungenerous with her guests. Patrick tells her that a demon is hiding in her cellar and being fattened by her dishonesty. He says that the only way to get rid of the demon is by mending her ways. Some time later, Patrick revisits the inn to find that the innkeeper is now serving her guests cups of whiskey filled to the brim. He praises her generosity and brings her to the cellar, where they find the demon withering away. It then flees in a flash of flame, and Patrick decrees that people should have a drink of whiskey on his feast day in memory of this. This is said to be the origin of drowning the shamrock on St. Patrick's Day. 88. Battle for the body of St. Patrick, according to the Annals of the Four Masters, an early modern compilation of earlier annals, his corpse soon became an object of conflict in the battle for the body of St. Patrick, Kathcoip Naon Porik, the UE, Nilan the Agiala attempted to bring it to Arma. The Ule tried to keep it for themselves. When the UE Nilan the Agiala came to a certain water, the river swelled against them so that they were not able to cross it. When the flood had subsided the Nilan the Ule united on terms of peace, to bring the body of Patrick with them. It appeared to each of them that each had the body conveying it to their respective territories. The body of Patrick was afterwards interred at Don, Dalethglas with great honor and veneration, and during the twelve nights that the religious seniors were watching the body with psalms and hymns, it was not night in Mag in ashore the neighboring lands, as they thought, but as if it were the full undarkened light of day. 89. Modern Theories To Patrick's Theory St. Patrick sent to Ireland by the Pope, wall mosaic in St. Mary's Cathedral, Kilkenny. Emphasizing the supposed papal mission of Patrick would help lend credence to the Catholic teaching that the Irish Church was always under papal authority. Irish academic T.F. O'Reilly proposed the two Patricks theory, 90, which suggests that many of the traditions later attached to St. Patrick actually concerned the aforementioned Palladius, who, according to Prosper of Aquitaine's Chronicle, was sent by Pope Celestine I as the first bishop to Irish Christians in 431. Palladius was not the only early cleric in Ireland at this time. The Irish-born St. Ciaran of Sager lived in the later 4th century, 352-402, and was the first bishop of Ossory. Ciaran, along with Saints Auxilius, Secundinus and Iserninus, is also associated with early churches in Munster and Leinster. By this reading, Palladius was active in Ireland until the 460s, 91. 
Prosper Associates Palladius appointment with the visits of Germanus of Auxerre to Britain to suppress Pelagianism and it has been suggested that Palladius and his colleagues were sent to Ireland to ensure that exiled Pelagians did not establish themselves among the Irish Christians. The appointment of Palladius and his fellow bishops was not obviously a mission to convert the Irish, but more probably intended to minister to existing Christian communities in Ireland. 92. The sites of churches associated with Palladius and his colleagues are close to royal centres of the period. Secundus is remembered by Dunshockland, County Meath, close to the Hill of Tara which is associated with the High King of Ireland, Kilishi, County Kildare, close to Nace with, links with the Kings of Leinster, is probably named for Auxilius. This activity was limited to the southern half of Ireland, and there is no evidence for them in Ulster or Connacht. 93. Although the evidence for contacts with Gaul is clear, the borrowings from Latin into Old Irish show that links with Roman Britain were many. 94. Iserninus, who appears to be of the generation of Palladius, is thought to have been a Briton, and is associated with the lands of the UE Cienzaleg in Leinster. The Palladian mission should not be contrasted with later British missions, but forms a part of them. 95. Nor can the work of Palladius be uncritically equated with that of St. Patrick, as was once traditional. 90. Abduction reinterpreted. According to Patrick's own account, it was Irish raiders who brought him to Ireland where he was enslaved and held captive for six years. 96. However, a recent alternative interpretation of Patrick's departure to Ireland suggests that, as the son of a decurion, he would have been obliged by Roman law to serve on the town council, Curia but chose instead to abscond from the onerous obligations of this office by fleeing abroad. As many others in his position had done in what has become known as the Flight of the Curiels, 97, Roy Fleckner also asserts the improbability of an escape from servitude and journey of the kind that Patrick purports to have undertaken. He also interprets the biblical allusions in Patrick's account, for example the theme of freedom after six years of servitude in Exod 21, 2 or Jer 34, 14, as implying parts of the account may not have been intended to be understood literally. 98. Sainthood and Veneration. Icon of St. Patrick from Christ the Saviour Orthodox Church, Wayne, West Virginia. Stained glass window of St. Patrick from the Protestant Church of Ireland Cathedral in Armagh. The 17th of March, popularly known as St. Patrick's Day, is believed to be his death date and is the date celebrated as his feast day. 99. The day became a feast day in the Catholic Church due to the influence of the Waterford-born Franciscan scholar Luke Wadding, as a member of the Commission for the Reform of the Breviary in the early part of the 17th century, 100. For most of Christianity's first thousand years, canonizations were done on the diocesan or regional level. Relatively soon after the death of people considered very holy, the local church affirmed that they could be liturgically celebrated as saints. As a result, Patrick has never been formally canonized by a pope, common before the Great Schism of 1054, and in the Orthodox Church which never innovated a formal canonization process and has always lacked a supreme pontiff. Nevertheless, various Christian churches declare that he is a saint in heaven, see list of saints he is still widely venerated in Ireland and elsewhere today. 101. Patrick is honored with a feast day on the liturgical calendar of the Episcopal Church, USA, and with a commemoration on the calendar of Evangelical, Lutheran worship, both on the 17th of March. Patrick is also venerated in the Eastern Orthodox Church as a pre-schism Western saint, especially among Orthodox Christians living in Ireland and the Anglosphere. 102. As is usual with saints, there are Orthodox icons dedicated to him. 103. St. Patrick remains a recurring figure in folk Christianity and Irish folk tales. 104. Patrick is said to be buried at Down Cathedral in Down Patrick, County Down, alongside St. Bridget and St. Columba. Although this has never been proven, St. Patrick Visitor Centre is a modern exhibition complex located in Down Patrick and is a permanent interpretative exhibition centre featuring interactive displays on the life and story of Patrick. It provides the only permanent exhibition centre in the world devoted to Patrick. 105. Patrick is remembered in the Church of England with a lesser festival on the 17th of March. 106. St. Patrick's Breastplate. Main article. St. Patrick's Breastplate. St. Patrick's Breastplate is a lorica, or hymn, 
which is attributed to Patrick during his Irish ministry in the 5th century, St. Patrick's Crosses, main article, list of St. Patrick's Crosses, Patrick showing cross pate on his robes. There are two main types of crosses associated with Patrick, the cross pate and the saltar. The cross pate is the more traditional association, while the association with the saltire dates from 1783 in the Order of St. Patrick. The cross pate has long been associated with Patrick for reasons that are uncertain. One possible reason is that bishops' mitres in ecclesiastical heraldry often appear surmounted by a cross pate. 107, 108, an example of this can be seen on the old crest of the Brothers of St. Patrick. 109. As Patrick was the founding bishop of the Irish Church, the symbol may have become associated with him. Patrick is traditionally portrayed in the vestments of a bishop, and his mitre and garments are often decorated with a cross pate. 110, 111, 112, 113, 114. The cross pate retains its link to Patrick to the present day. For example, it appears on the coat of arms of both the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Armagh, 115, and the Church of Ireland Archdiocese of Armagh, 116. This is on account of Patrick being regarded as the first bishop of the Diocese of Armagh. It is also used by Down District Council which has its headquarters in Down Patrick, the reputed burial place of Patrick. St. Patrick's sole tire is a red sole tire on a white field. It is used in the insignia of the Order of St. Patrick, established in 1783, and after the Acts of Union 1800 it was combined with the St. George's Cross of England and the St. Andrew's Cross of Scotland to form the Union flag of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. A saltire was intermittently used as a symbol of Ireland from the 17th century, but without reference to Patrick. Traditional St. Patrick's Day badges from the early 20th century, from the Museum of Country Life, Castlebar. It was formerly a common custom to wear a cross made of paper or ribbon on St. Patrick's Day. Surviving examples of such badges come in many colours, 117, and they were worn upright rather than as sole tyres, 118. Thomas Dinelly, an English traveller in Ireland in 1681, remarked that the Irish of all stations and condicans were crosses in their hats, some of pins, some of green ribbon. 119. Jonathan Swift, writing to Stella of St. Patrick's Day 1713, said the mall was so full of crosses that I thought all the world was Irish. 120. In the 1740s, the badges pinned were multicoloured interlaced fabric. 121. In the 1820s, they were only worn by children, with simple multicoloured daisy patterns. 121. 122. In the 1890s, they were almost extinct, and a simple green Greek cross inscribed in a circle of paper, similar to the Ballina crest pictured. 123. The Irish Times in 1935 reported they were still sold in poorer parts of Dublin but fewer than those of previous years some in velvet or embroidered silk or poplin with the gold paper cross entwined with shamrocks and ribbons 124 St. Patrick's Bell The Shrine of St. Patrick's Bell The National Museum of Ireland in Dublin possesses a bell Clog Fadre 125 127 First mentioned according to the Annals of Ulster in the Book of Kuanu in the year 552 the bell was part of a collection of relics of Patrick removed from his tomb 60 years after his death by Column Killa to be used as relics. The bell is, described as the Bell of the Testament, one of three relics of precious minna, extremely valuable items, of which the other two are described as Patrick's Goblet and the Angel's Gospel. Column Killa is described to have been under the direction of an angel for whom he sent the goblet to down, the bell to Arma, and kept possession of the Angel's Gospel for himself. The name Angel's Gospel is given to the book because it was supposed that Column Killer received it from the angel's hand. A stir was caused in 1044 when two kings, in some dispute over the bell, went on spates of prisoner taking and cattle theft. The annals make one more apparent reference to the bell when chronicling a death of 1356. Solomon Uemelain, the keeper of the bell of the testament, protector, rested in Christ. The bell was encased in a bell shrine, a distinctive Irish type of reliquary made for it, as an inscription records, by King Domnall Ewell Lachlan sometime between 1091 and 1105. 
The shrine is an important example of the final Viking-influenced style of Irish Celtic art with intricate urn-style decoration in gold and silver. The Gaelic inscription on the shrine also records the name of the maker Ewan Manan, which translates to Noonan, who with his sons enriched decorated it. Metal work was often inscribed for remembrance. The bell itself is simple in design, hammered into shape with a small handle fixed to the top with rivets. Originally forged from iron, it has since been coated in bronze. The shrine is inscribed with three names, including King Domnall Ewa Lucklands. The rear of the shrine, not intended to be seen, is decorated with crosses while the handle is decorated with, among other work, Celtic designs of birds. The bell is accredited with working a miracle in 1044, further explanation needed, and having been coated in bronze to shield it from human eyes, for which it would be too holy. It measures 12.5 x 10 cm at the base, 12.8 x 4 cm at the shoulder, 16.5 cm from base to shoulder, 3.3 cm from shoulder to top of handle and weighs 1.7 kg, 128 St. Patrick and Irish Identity, a 1909 St. Patrick's Day postcard with the Irish slogan Air and Go Brag Ireland Forever. Patrick features in many stories in the Irish oral tradition and there are many customs connected with his feast day. The folklorist Jenny Butler discusses how these traditions have been given new layers of meaning over time while also becoming tied to Irish identity both in Ireland and abroad. The symbolic resonance of the St. Patrick figure is complex and multifaceted, stretching from that of Christianity's arrival in Ireland to an identity that encompasses everything Irish. In some portrayals, the saint is symbolically synonymous with the Christian religion itself. There is also evidence of a combination of indigenous religious traditions with that of Christianity, which places St. Patrick in the wider framework of cultural hybridity. Popular religious expression has this characteristic feature of merging elements of culture. Later in time, the saint becomes associated specifically with Catholic Ireland and synonymously with Irish national identity. Subsequently, St. Patrick is a patriotic symbol along with the color green and the shamrock. St. Patrick's Day celebrations include many traditions that are known to be relatively recent historically, but have endured through time because of their association either with religious or national identity. They have persisted in such a way that they have become stalwart traditions. Viewed as the strongest Irish traditions, 129 places associated with St. Patrick, Slemish, County Antrim, traditionally associated with St. Patrick's time as a shepherd slave, St. Patrick's statue at Saul, County Down, St. Patrick's oratory at the top of Croke Patrick, County Mayo, Slemish, County Antrim and Keelala Bay, County Mayo. When captured by raiders, there are two theories as to where Patrick was enslaved. One theory is that he herded sheep in the countryside around Slemish. Another theory is that Patrick herded sheep near Keelala Bay, at a place called Fochill, Glastonbury Abbey, Somerset, UK. It is claimed that he was buried within the abbey grounds next to the high altar, which has led to many believing this is why Glastonbury was popular among Irish pilgrims. It is also believed that he was the founder and the first abbot of Glastonbury Abbey, 130. This was recorded by William of Malmesbury in his document, De Antiquitat Glastoniensis Ecclesiae, concerning the antiquity of Glastonbury, that was compiled between 1129 and 1135, where it was noted that after converting the Irish and establishing them solidly in the Catholic faith he returned to his native land, and was led by guidance from on high to Glastonbury. There he came upon certain holy men living the life of hermits. Finding themselves all of one mind with Patrick they decided to form a community, and elected him as their superior. Later, two of their members resided on the tour to serve its chapel, 131, within the grounds of the Abbey lies St. Patrick's Chapel, Glastonbury which is a site of pilgrimage to this day. The well-known Irish scholar James Carney also elaborated on this claim and wrote it is possible that Patrick, tired and ill at the end of his arduous mission felt released from his vow not to leave Ireland, and returned to the monastery from which he had come, which might have been Glastonbury, 132. It is also another possible burial site of the saint, where it is documented he has been interred in the old Waddle Church, 130. Small monastery, from Irish, Sapol Fadraig meaning Patrick's barn, 
133, it is claimed that Patrick founded his first church in a barn at Seoul, which was donated to him by a local chieftain called Dichu. It is also claimed that Patrick died at Seoul or was brought there between his death and burial. Nearby, on the crest of Sleeve Patrick, is a huge statue of Patrick with bronze panels showing scenes from his life. Hill of Slain, County Meath, Mukumoku Machthini, in his highly mythologized 7th century life of Patrick, says that Patrick lit a paschal fire on this hilltop in 433 in defiance of High King Lauraia. The story says that the fire could not be doused by anyone but Patrick, and it was here that he explained the Holy Trinity using the shamrock. Croke Patrick, County Mayo, from Irish, Cruach Fadraig, meaning Patrick's stag. 134. It is claimed that Patrick climbed this mountain and fasted on its summit for the 40 days of Lent. Croke Patrick draws thousands of pilgrims who make the trek to the top on the last Sunday in July. Loch Dork, County Donegal from Irish, Loch Jarrig, meaning Red Lake. 135. It is claimed that Patrick killed a large serpent on this lake and that its blood turned the water red, hence the name. Each August, pilgrims spend three days fasting and praying there on Station Island, Armagh, County Armagh. It is claimed that Patrick founded a church here and proclaimed it to be the most holy church in Ireland. Armagh is today the primary seat of both the Catholic Church in Ireland and the Church of Ireland, and both cathedrals in the town are named after Patrick. Down Patrick, County Down from Irish, Don Podrig, meaning Patrick's stronghold, 136. Failed verification. It is claimed that Patrick was brought here after his death and buried in the grounds of Down Cathedral. Stone found below St. Patrick's Well. St. Patrick's Cathedral, Dublin, Ireland. Other places named after St. Patrick include Patrick's Well Lane, a well in Drogheda, town where St. Patrick opened a monastery and baptized the townspeople. Art Patrick, County Limerick from Irish, Art Podrick, meaning High Place of Patrick, 137. Failed verification. Patrick Water, Old Patrick Water, Eldersley, Renfisher from Scots Gaelic Alp Podrig meaning Patrick's Burn. 138, 139, 140, 141. Patrick's Well Art of Patrick, County Limerick, from Irish, Toba Fadre, meaning Patrick's Well. 142, St. Patrick's Well. 143, Patterdale, three churches in the Diocese of Carlisle. 144, are dedicated to St. Patrick, they are all within the historic county of Westmoreland, St. Patrick's Patterdale, at the head of Ellswater. The present church was built in the 19th century but the chapel in Patrick'sdale is mentioned in a charter of 1348, 145, St. Patrick's Bampton, near Shap, St. Patrick's Preston Patrick near Kirby Lonsdale, St. Patrick's Chapel, Hasham, a ruined chapel near St. Peter's Church, Hasham, Lancashire. The chapel dates from the 8th century, St. Patrick's Island, County Dublin, Old Kilpatrick, near Dumbarton, Scotland from Kilfadre, Patrick's Church, a claimant to his birthplace, St. Patrick's Isle, off the Isle of Man, St. Patrick's, Newfoundland and Labrador, a community in the Baivert district of Newfoundland, Lanbadrig, Church, Innesbadrig, Island, Port Patrick, Cove, Lynn Patrick, Lake, and Rosbadrig, Heath, on the island of Anglesey in Wales, Temple Patrick, County Antrim from Irish, Team Paul Fadre, meaning Patrick's Church, 146, St. Patrick's Hill, Liverpool, on old maps of the town near to the former location of St. Patrick's Cross, 147, Baracquia San Patricio y Espiritu Santo Loisa, Puerto Rico. The site was initially mentioned in 1645 as a chapel. The actual building was completed by 1729, is one of the oldest churches in the Americas and today represents the faith of many Irish emigrants that settled in Loisa by the end of the 18th century. Today it is a museum in literature. Pedro Calderon de la Barca wrote El Purgatorio de San Patricio in 1634, 148. Robert Southey wrote a ballad called St. Patrick's Purgatory, first published in 1798, based on popular legends surrounding the saint's name. 148. Patrick is mentioned in a 17th century ballad about St. George and the Dragon. Stephen R. Lawhead wrote the fictional Patrick, son of Ireland loosely, based on the saint's life. 
including imagined accounts of training as a druid and service in the Roman army before his conversion. 149. The 1999 historical novel Let Me Die in Ireland by Anabaptist author and attorney David Bercott is based on the documented facts of Patrick's life rather than the legend, and suggests implications of his example for Christians today. 150. In film, St. Patrick, the Irish legend is a 2000 television historical drama film about the saint's life. Patrick is portrayed by Patrick Bergin. The patron saint of Ireland is a 2020 film based on Patrick's own writings and the earliest traditions. Patrick is portrayed by Sean O'Meally, with Robert McCormick playing him when he is younger and John Rhys Davis in later life. It is available on Netflix in UK and Ireland. Happy fucking St. Patrick's Day. Motherfuckers, have a whiskey on me. Happy fucking St. Patrick's Day. Motherfuckers. Have a whiskey? On me. I lick your tits. Fuck you. No. Fuck me.
Billy Duffin the Devil, P.H. Emerson, Billy Duffy was an Irishman, a blacksmith, and a drunkard. He had the Celtic aversion from steady work, and stuck to his forge only long enough to get money for drink. When that was spent, he returned to work. Billy was coming home one day after one of these drinking bouts, soberer than usual, when he exclaimed to himself, for the thirst was upon him, by God, I would sell myself to the devil if I could get some more drink. At that moment a tall gentleman in black stepped up to him and said, What did you say? I said I would sell myself to the devil if I could get a drink. Well, how much do you want for seven years and the devil to get you then? Well, I can't tell exactly when it comes to the push. Will 700 pounds do you? Yes, I'd take 700 pounds and the devil to get you then. Oh, yes. I don't care about that. When Billy got home he found the money in his smithy. He at once shut the smithy and began squandering the money, keeping open house. Amongst the people who flocked to get what they could out of Billy came an old hermit who said, I am very hungry and nearly starved. Will you give me something to eat and drink? Oh, yes, come in and get what you like. The hermit disappeared after eating and drinking and did not reappear for several months when he received the same kindly welcome again disappearing. A few months afterwards he again appeared. Come in. Come in said Billy. After he had eaten and drunk his full, the hermit said to Billy, Well, three times have you been good and kind to me. I'll give you three wishes, and whatever you wish will be sure to come true. I must have time to consider, said Billy. Oh, you shall have plenty of time to consider, and mind they are good wishes. Next morning Billy told the hermit he was ready. Well, go on. Be sure they're good wishes, said the hermit. Well, I've got a big sledgehammer in the smithy, and I wish whoever gets hold of that hammer shall go on striking the anvil, and never break it, till I tell him to stop. Oh, that's a bad wish, Billy. Oh, no, you'll see it's good. Next thing I wish for is a purse so that no one can take out whatever I put into it. Oh, Billy, Billy, that's a bad wish. Be careful now about the third wish, said the hermit. Well, I have got an armchair upstairs, and I wish that whoever makes it in that armchair will never be able to get up till I let them. Well, well, indeed, they are not very good wishes. Oh, yes, I've got my senses about me. I think I'll make them good wishes. After all, the seven years, all but three days, had passed, and Billy was back working at his forge, for all his money was gone, when the dark gentleman stepped in and said, Now, Billy, during these last three days you may have as much money as you like. And he disappeared. On the last day of his seven years Billy was penniless, and he went to the tap room of his favorite inn, which was full. Well, boys, said Billy, we must have some money tonight. I'll treat you, and give you a pound each. And rising, he placed his tumbler in the middle of the table, and wished for twenty pounds. No sooner had he wished than a ball of fire came through the ceiling and the twenty sovereigns fell into the tumbler. Everyone was taken aback, and there was a noise as if a bomb had burst, and the fireball disappeared, and rolled down the garden path, the landlord following it. After this they each drank what they liked, and Billy gave them a sovereign apiece before he went home. The next morning he was in his smithy making a pair of horseshoes, when the devil came in and said, Well, Billy, I want you this morning. Yes, all right. Take hold of this sledgehammer, and give me a few hammers till I finish this job before I go. So the devil seized the hammer and began striking the anvil, but he couldn't stop. So Billy laughed, and locked him in, and was away three days. During this time the people collected round the smithy, and peeped through the cracks in the shutter, for they could hear the hammer going night and day. At the end of three days Billy returned and opened the door, and the devil said, Oh, Billy, you've played a fine trick to me. Let me go. What are you going to give me if I let you go? Seven years more, twice the money, and two days grace for wishing for what you like. The devil paid his money and disappeared, and Billy shut the smithy and took to gambling and drinking, so that at the end of seven years he was without a penny, and working again in his smithy. On the last night of the seven years he went to his favorite public house again, and wished for five pounds. After he wished, a little man entered and spat the sovereigns into the tumbler, and they all drank all night. Next morning Billy went back to his smithy. The devil, who had grown suspicious, turned himself into a sovereign and appeared on the floor. Billy seized the sovereign and clapped it into his purse. Then he took his purse and lay it upon the anvil, and began to beat it with his sledgehammer. When the devil began to call out, spare my poor limbs, 
spare my poor limbs. How much now if I let you go? Asked Billy. Seven more years, three times the money, and one day in which to wish for what you like. Billy took the sovereign out of his purse and threw it away when he found his money in the smithy. Billy carried on worse than ever, gambled and drank and raced, squandering it all before his seven years was gone. On the last day of his term he went to his favorite inn as usual and wished for a tumbler full of sovereigns. A little man with a big head, a big nose, and big mouth, a little body, and little legs, with clubbed feet and a forked tail, brought them in and put them in the tumbler. The drunkards in the room got scared when they saw the little man, for he looked all glowing with fire as he danced on the table. When he finished, he said, Billy, tomorrow morning our compact is up. I know it, old boy, I know it, old boy said Billy. Then the devil ran out and disappeared, and the people began to question Billy, what is that? I think it is you, Mr. Duffy, he is after. Oh, it is nothing at all, said Billy, I should think there was something said the man. I am afraid my house will get a bad name, croaked the landlord. Not in the least. You are only a coward, said Billy. But in the name of God, what is it all about? Asked an old man. Oh, you'll see by and by, said Billy. It is nothing at all. Next morning Billy went to his smithy, but the devil would not come near it. So he went to his house and began to quarrel with his wife. And whilst he was quarreling the devil walked in and said, Well, Mr. Duffy, I am ready for you. Ah, yes, just sit down and wait a minute or two. I have some papers I want to put to rights before I go. So the devil sat down in the armchair, and Billy went to the smithy and heated a pair of tongs red hot. And coming back, he got the devil by the nose, and pulled it out as though it had been soft iron. And the devil began yelling, but he could not move. And Billy kept drawing the nose out till it was long enough to reach over the window, when he put an old bell topper on the end of it. And the devil yelled, and snorted fire from his nose. The whole of the village crowded round Billy's house, at a safe distance, calling out, Billy and the devil. The devil and Billy Duffy. The devil got awful savage, and blackguarded Billy Duffy terribly, but it was useless. Billy kept him there for days, till he got civil and said, Mr. Duffy, what will you let me go for? Only one thing. I am to live the rest of my life without you, and have as much gold as I like. The devil agreed, so Billy let him go, and immediately he grew rich. He lived to a good old age squandering money all the time, but at last he died and when he got to the gates of hell the clerk said who are you Billy Duffy, said he. And when the devil, who was standing near, heard, he said, good God bar the gates and double lock them for if this Billy Duffy the blacksmith gets in he will ruin us all. Old Billy saw a pair of red hot tongs, which he picked up, and seized the devil by the nose. When the devil pulled back his head he left a red hot bit of his nose in the tongs. Then Billy Duffy went up to the gates of heaven and Saint Peter asked him who he was. Billy Duffy the blacksmith, he answered, no admittance, you are a bold, bad man said street peter good god what will i do said billy and he went back to the earth where he and the piece of the devil's nose melted into a ball of fire and he robes the earth till this day as a willow the wisp as probably the loudest lover of whiskey in your life i wanted to wish you a very happy saint patty's St. Patrick's Day. I love you. Thanks for listening. Stadium. Stadium.